my name is Rachel Wortman. If I haven't had a chance to meet you guys yet, and I go with him, and we are the pastors here. And we are in week two of our series on Revelation. So uh, I don't have much time to do a recap, a full recap from last week. So I encourage you to make sure you have heard last week's message. It will kind of help put the framework for this week. Um, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 23. That's where we're starting on Revelation today. Oh, I forgot to say, happy birthday to Garland Mills. Uh, I know we don't always shout out everybody's birthday, but Garland and Judy are Grant and I's couples goals. We want to be like them in that stage of life. They do prison ministry. They do all kinds of amazing things, see people radically saved and set free and minister to their neighborhood. They're just incredible people. So I felt like the Lord said for you, Garland, this is going to be your most fruitful year yet. So uh, we're looking forward to that for you. So we just bless you with that. All right, back to Revelation. Um, so I did want to say one thing in case you, didn't, you weren't here last week, and it's this. The way we are looking at Revelation is twofold. Number one, the message of Revelation is the victory of Christ. Amen? So although there are things that feel intense that we're going to start covering today, we have to remember the lens through which God wrote this to us was to encourage you that in him you will overcome no matter what happens. Okay? The second thing we talked about last week is that I'm going to present to you that it's my personal opinion the bulk of Revelation has actually already happened. And I know some of you guys might be like, wait, what? I thought I was looking forward to the destruction of the world, and I want to present to you an alternative theory. Are we okay with that? So does anybody truly know exactly what Revelation means? No. There's a lot of mystery around it. So none of us are going to be able to say with a thousand percent certainty, I guarantee this is what it means, at least the parts we're going to cover today. But I am suggesting to you that there is enough evidence of things that have happened in the past that make us look and say, maybe what we were all really afraid of actually doesn't exist. Can I just say that? All right, so last disclaimer I'll give you, and I said this last week, you are free to hold a different opinion than me, okay? So this is America, but even in the kingdom of God, we are, in, we are allowed by God to develop our own thoughts. He likes that about you. He really likes freedom. So this is not something that we would break relationship over, right? So if you end up hearing me today and you go, that is garbage, I cannot believe that, cool, let's still be friends, amen? That's what America needs right now is the ability to disagree and still love each other. So, okay, here we go. Holy Spirit, we really need you today. Uh, Lord, I'm just asking that you bless the word that you've given this morning. Help us illuminate our eyes, help us understand your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're beginning Revelation looking at Matthew chapter 23, because this is a huge component to the book of Revelation. Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross. He's in the temple, and he is giving out woes like, like Oprah gave out cars. You guys remember that episode? You get a car. You get a car. Jesus walks into the temple, and he's just giving out woes. Woe to you. Woe to you. Woe to you. There's eight of them right here. And we're not going to read them, but I just want you to see this in your own Bible. Uh, I'm going to be reading from the Amplified today, so if you guys want to do that translation, it might be easier to follow along. So Jesus is woeing everybody. This is where we get that famous uh, statement about cleaning the inside of the cup, right? He's woeing them. You're always worked on your outside appearance, but the inside's what matters. Uh, you can turn the page in your Bible if it's like mine. More woes are coming. And then we get to verse 36. Now, this becomes a linchpin that we cannot ignore, okay? 
Here's what it says, Matthew chapter 23, 36. Jesus has just finished casting intense judgment on the Pharisees. Who are the Pharisees? They were the pastors of the day. They were the religious leaders called by God to demonstrate who God was. Is Jesus' tone with the Pharisees something we should do? Probably not, because this is God speaking to his representatives on the earth, right? Some of us, maybe not in this room, but we like to look at this and go, well, Jesus was real snippy with them Pharisees, and so I can be snippy with you, and we use it as permission to be rude, and that's not actually what it's for. So little disclaimer for you. So he says this in verse 36, I assure you and most solemnly say to you, the judgment for all these things, these vile and murderous deeds, will come on this generation. So everybody say, this generation. So Jesus was literally talking about the people he was looking at. Can we just agree with that? A generation in the Bible is 40 years. So what Jesus is saying is, within 40 years of these words coming out of my mouth, there will be judgment on you for all of these terrible things you were doing. Okay? So that's the end of Matthew 23. He goes on, and he says, and this is like the real, this one's intense. Just imagine yourself in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Imagine yourself, the center of God's everything was the temple, the place where you worship. This is where God actually physically met with people. He did not meet with people like he does today in your coffee shop or in your prayer closet. He met with them in the temple. And God, Jesus says this in 38, listen carefully, your house is being left to you desolate. I love how the Amplified continues to say, completely abandoned by God and destitute of his protection. Okay, you and I do not want to be on the other end of Jesus making that declaration, do we? No, we do not. And so this is the scenario. He's woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. And I am telling you, these judgments are coming in this generation. Oh, and another thing, right? And he goes, and your house will be laid desolate. And then he leaves. It's like mic drop. And so now let's go to chapter 24, and I just want to encourage you, if you hear nothing else from today, hear this. You cannot separate these two chapters. They are the same story. A lot of people like to say, let's turn to Matthew 24 and look at the end of the world and totally ignore what Jesus was talking about, okay? So verse, 20, verse 1 of chapter 24, Jesus left the temple area and was going on his way when his disciples came up to him and called his attention to the magnificent and massive buildings of the temple, The temple was being renovated in this time period. So just imagine, mic drop, it's going to be leveled, right? And they're walking out, and I don't know, probably Peter, somebody's like, look at that scaffolding up there. Look at that, right? And they're walking out. And Jesus is like, don't even talk to me about this place anymore. It's the way that I foresee it in my imagination. And then he says this in verse 2. He said this to them, do you see all these things? They're pointing it out. He's like, do you see all these things? I assure you and most solemnly say to you, Not one stone here will be left on another which will not be torn down. This is a big deal. They're marveling at what's going up, and Jesus is saying, don't put your attention there. This whole thing is coming down. When? Do you guys remember? This generation. So there's a a ticking time clock on it. And then they walk from the temple to the Mount of Olives. If you're not familiar with the geography of Jerusalem, this is like going to a concert at the convention center when you had to park in the farthest parking spot away. It's about that distance. You can see the Mount of Olives from the temple. So I think a lot of us like separate and say, now they're in the Mount of Olives and they're talking about the end and that's somehow disconnected to what was just happening, but it's not. So they walk less than a 10 minute walk from the temple exit 
to the Mount of Olives. And can you imagine the disciples' brains are going, what is he talking about? He's saying this thing is going to come down. He's saying all these judgments. He's saying in this generation, they're confused. So they go to him in verse 3 and they ask him, while Jesus was seated on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and said, tell us when this destruction of the temple will take place and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. Now there's three questions there. Did you hear them? Your translation might say, when will these things happen? So what are the these things? Remember, it's the woes. It's the judgment. It's not the end of the world. So here's what the disciples are saying. When are these things that you just pronounced judgment on, when are they going to happen? And what's going to be the sign of your coming? Which the last verse of 23, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, I'm not, you're not going to see me ministering again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they're trying to figure this out. What do you mean you're not going to minister publicly again? And then is this the end of the world? In a Jewish person's mind at this time period, the temple being destroyed almost feels like the end of the world to them. Can you see how these questions... So then Jesus begins to do something that is interesting. He starts giving some signs. So we're going to look at five of them today. There's several more depending on how you categorize them. But Jesus says, here's the signs of when these things will happen. What are these things? The judgment on Jerusalem. Okay? We're going to get to Revelation, I promise. So some of the signs. um, Let's see. Verse 6 of 24. Oh, no, let's go back one. Uh, People coming in my name. This would be like false prophets. It actually talks about false prophets again in a couple of verses down later. The year after Jesus was resurrected, there was a guy named Docetus who was a Samaritan who began to proclaim that he was, and I quote, the great power of God in the flesh. This is a historical account. And he actually converted a bunch of Jews at the time that he was actually God in the flesh, which is interesting because he missed Jesus by a year. And then he was actually, uh, he fizzled out. That didn't go much farther after converting a bunch of people. Three years later, another Samaritan rises up, and he claims that he actually has Moses' sacred utensils. God gave them to him. That means he's super special. He converted a bunch of people away. He was trying to lead an uprising. Pontius Pilate himself actually squashed him down, which is ironic. And then we have Thaddeus, who actually convinced multitudes of Jews that he was God. In, he, wasn't, he wasn't saying he was God incarnate, but he was saying he was the prophet. He was Jesus, basically, taking Jesus' place. And his things, very cult-like, he convinced everybody to sell all their possessions or bring their possessions with them across the Jordan River and set up a compound where they were going to wait for God to do something. And his plan was, when you get to the Jordan River, you will see that I have the power to split the Jordan River, just like in the Old Testament. He was actually chased down by Roman soldiers and beheaded. So that's how he ended. Um, But there were these things happening right after the time of Jesus, leading up to 70 AD, when Jerusalem was actually destroyed. Let's go down to wars and rumors of wars. Verse 6. So um, this is interesting. At the time that Jesus said this, they were actually in the Pax Romana. So there was actually a time of peace. So what he was prophesying is this peace is not going to last. Was it peaceful to be a Jew at the time? No, it was a difficult way to live. But there were not rumors of wars happening within their own camp. In fact, Jesus goes on to talk about kingdoms rising against kingdoms. And that actually happened, if you look at Roman history, that actually happened from that point until 70 AD. It's pretty interesting. Um, What else? Oh, famines and earthquakes. This is a big one. Josephus Flavius. I told you guys about him last week. He's a, a famous historian, a Roman historian at the time. He is, he has just 
incredible amounts of documentation about what it was like. If you want to read his account of Jerusalem's destruction, you can do that in the book The War of Worlds, which is by him. And he literally just, it's like Dear Diary entries. He just describes everything that is happening at the time. So he records that right before 70 AD, in that decade before, there was an unprecedented amount of earthquakes. Unprecedented, which is interesting. In fact, this is when Pompeii was destroyed by an earthquake. So if we put the history we learned in school with what's happening in the Bible, let's do one more. Oh, uh, famines. There was huge famines happening at this time. In 1 Corinthians, when Paul tells them to give aid to those who are in distress, the ones who were in distress were actually suffering from a famine at the time. Um, and then what else? The, uh, oh, he says the gospel of the kingdom is going to be preached. So let's look at verse 14. I promise we're going to get to Revelation. Verse 14 is really interesting because Jesus is kind of, you know, in conversation when someone bounces ahead and then comes back, right? This is what he's doing. He's saying, here's all these things that are going to happen before Jerusalem is destroyed. And then he says, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony. And then the end of the age will come. He makes a distinction about that will be the end of the world. And then he jumps back in the next verse, says, so... Okay, so he's like, going forward in the future, this is your question about the end of time. Let's go back about how you're going to know what to do when Jerusalem is destroyed. Key in on this, guys. Verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation uh, spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains for refuge. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get things that are in his house because there will not be enough time. He goes on and he describes, woe to those who are pregnant nursing mothers. He talks about this really, really difficult time that's to come. So the way that the Jewish revolt ended up happening, the way that Jerusalem ended up getting destroyed, this was a four-year process, but it, it started with a ruler named Florius, Gessius Florius, who was a terrible person. And long story short, he demanded the Jews to get temple silver to pay him from. They wanted, he wanted silver out of the temple. This is a huge deal. The Jews said no. He sent guards to go press in and just get it. They uprose. They uh, defeated the guards. Um, I heard one historian say it like this. These guards that tried to come in were like, this is, Sorry if anybody has this job. These were like mall cops versus like the SWAT team, okay? So it wasn't hard the first time that they, de that they defeated them. So they keep the Jews out of the temple. Yay, hurrah, we have this win. And then Florius is furious, and he sends the SWAT team in. And so the SWAT team comes in. They go into the temple, which is a desecration. It's an abomination in God's eyes for an unclean person to go into the temple. And they plunder it, and they actually kill 3,600 people. Here's what Josephus says. When that happened, Roman troops start showing up around Jerusalem. All the Christians, boom, left. Not one Christian is recorded as having been killed in the Jewish revolt, which killed hundreds of thousands of Jews. Why? Because they believed that what Jesus had said in this chapter was for them. What's one really nail in the coffin for this? This happened about 38 years after Jesus said it. What is this generation? 40 years. So Jesus is standing in the temple. <clears throat> he's woeing it. He's casting destruction on the people, not necessarily. Yes, he's upset with the Pharisees for misrepresenting God. He's also casting judgment on the old covenant system. We talk about the new covenant a lot, right? God was saying, listen, this sacrificial thing where you believe that your works cause you to be right with me, that cannot exist any longer because now my new covenant does not work like that. And I can't have both of these covenants trying to compete for my attention. So he destroys it in Jerusalem. Pretty interesting stuff, right? All right, let's go up to Revelation 4. 
So when the Christians saw all these things happening, they left, they fled to Mount Pella, um, they hid in caves, and they actually were in a very difficult time for about four years. It was a time of tribulation for them. Um, Jesus says in earlier in the chapter that uh, nothing like this will have ever happened before or will happen again. In other words, what happened to Jerusalem was the worst of everything in the world. If you read some of the accounts of what happened, it's, it's horrible. It's absolutely horrific. Let me tell you a little bit about what happened when Rome actually truly invaded Jerusalem. They ended up walling off the city so that there wouldn't be any food for anybody. And this is going to be grotesque for a second, so I apologize. But um, the people began to die of famine. And in fact, Josephus Flavius talks about they would go out to bury their dead and they themselves would fall dead because they didn't have enough strength to even bury their family members. Um, loads and loads and loads of Jewish bodies were dumped, not ironically, in a little place called Gehenna. They were crucifying Jews, this is the Roman way, and Josephus says the ground, the literal, the literal earth, had no additional square footage to put another crucifix in. It was, there were so many, there was nowhere else in the ground to put them. Some of the wealthier Jews, they figured out they could try to swallow their own gold and escape so they could go make a life for themselves. One of the Roman soldiers found out about this and actually began to line them up and cut them at their stomachs and pull the gold out from underneath them. This was a very, very, very horrific thing. Um, the way that it all ended was the Jews ended up barring themselves inside of the temple, kind of like a last Hail Mary, hoping God would protect them, hoping the Romans wouldn't come in, who knows. But the temple was actually set on fire. So the guy who was the commander of all of this was a commander named Titus, who ended up becoming emperor later. And we were actually there in Israel a couple years ago, and we got to see the excavation of this house that's named the Burned House. And what we don't understand as Americans is that homes in Israel at this time, they were all built by stone. So imagine stone does not burn the same way that wood does. And so the way that the Romans would burn the houses is they would cut down trees, a lot of times olive trees, light them on fire, throw them in the houses, and that's how they would burn everything that was inside. And so there are houses there that actually the excavation, they're literally singe marks all over the walls. It's, it's really sad. So the Jews wall themselves inside the temple. Um, the army under Titus burns it down. And this is crazy. It got so hot inside that all of the gold that was inside melted. And it actually melted down into the cracks of the stones. So when Titus comes in and he sees this, he is furious, not because of all the people who were killed, but because of all the gold that was wasted. He was mad at his army for not taking the gold out first before they burned everybody. So this is what he made them do. This is Roman historical document. He made them dismantle the temple stone by stone to scrape the gold off of it. Which if we go back to Matthew chapter 23, and Jesus is standing there and says, I'm telling you the truth, not one stone will be left upon another before this is over. Pretty wild, huh? So what I want you to see, if nothing else, is that the book of Revelation is a love letter from Jesus to his church that you and I will make it through the worst days the world will ever see before the end of the age. Because what did Jesus say? Nothing has ever happened like this. Nothing like this will happen again. He is, just picture it this way. John is writing to a persecuted church. When Nero was the emperor, hundreds of thousands of people were Christians, were, were killed, were martyred. And so John is writing to them to have comfort, to have courage. You will make it through. 
You and I need to be careful in how, you, again, you don't have to side with me on this interpretation, but we have to be careful about how we look at this scripture so that we do not partner with fear. Because the message of Revelation, even if for some unforeseen reason all of this is about to still happen, the message is not that this is horrible, we are going, you know, that God has abandoned us. The message is that God will be with us in the middle. You guys ready to see this? All right, we're going to skip chapter 4 for the sake of time. It's beautiful throne room worship. Um, Do yourself a favor. Read that in your time with the Lord this week. But let's pick up in chapter 5, verse 1. So John has just, he's entering into another part of the vision. He says, I saw in the right hand of God, him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written on the inside and on the back, closed and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel announcing with a loud voice, who is worthy, having the authority and virtue to open the scroll and to break its seals? So let's break this down for a second. In this time period, legal documents were sealed with the... um, they're actually sealed with like terracotta clay. It wasn't wax, it was like clay. And they would put their little emblem in there. And the, the documents were, I didn't mean to have this paper here, but I'll just show you. They were like this, okay? And they would have the same writing on both sides. It was like a mirror image. And then one would be rolled up like this and folded in half. I'll show you this in just a second. I wasn't meaning to do origami today, but craft time interlude. So they would look like this. Can you see this? This one is rolled up, folded in half, and the seals would go around this. And then this one was rolled up, and if you were transporting them somewhere, you'd have it sometimes like this. You can put the the one that looks like this. You can put that on the screen. So um, this part, if it was ever damaged, the only there was like legal people who were allowed to break the seals, no one else. It was a huge problem if you did not have the authority to break open the seal that sealed a legal document, okay? So this, there's an interesting picture. This is what it would look like from, from the Hebrew perspective. You can go to the other one, too. Um, there's another uh, um, picture that's like this, if you want to picture it. This one, if you could see the picture more clearly, there's actually faded writing on it. This is a replica. But essentially, they would, you know, at this time period, paper was scarce, right? So they would use every centimeter of paper. And so it's really common for documents to be written on front and the back. So I want you to imagine the scroll that's in God's hand, okay? Whether it was folded or not, it's got writing on it like this. Can you see this? So this is one document that's going to take us through how many page, how many chapters? It's going to get through the seventh trumpet. So at least the seventh trumpet. So we're at chapter 12, basically. One document that's going to tell that whole story. A lot of us, we don't understand the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bulls of wrath, and how they all fit together. But the seven seals and the seven trumpets, to the best of my understanding, after hours and hours of research, is actually two sides of the same story. Okay, so we're going to look at that a little bit. We're only going to make it through the seals today, so those of you guys are like, I'm already hungry. We're only going to make it through the seals today. But so if you can imagine somebody breaking off seals, that you could begin to read more of what's on the back of this. Does this make sense? So this is the picture you need to have in your mind as we walk ourselves through this. One other thing, it's interesting, um, you know, nothing in the Bible is wasted. No imagery is wasted. And the number seven, you've probably heard, is a number of completeness. But I wanted to know, is there any other reason why seven would be the number there? Because what we've seen is seven has different meanings in Revelation. Last week, the seven were the stars. And they, the st- those stars were not any stars. They were messengers, right? This week, there's seven seals. Next week, there's seven trumpets. I mean, it's really interesting. Seven doesn't always mean the same thing. And so I wanted to know. So I started researching Roman law and Hebraic law, trying to figure out 
is there anything significant about the number seven? And I just want to present this to you. I can't 100% say this is exactly why, but it's interesting. The only time a Roman legal document would have seven seals, these are seven witnesses, was a will and testament. So if you were passing on land to someone after they died, you needed seven different seals, witnesses of people, who verified that that's where you wanted your land to go. If that was not found to be accurate, then Rome got to seize the land and do what they wanted with it, or the property, okay? So let's think about it like this. Jesus is being shown here in just a moment as the Son of God, as the one who was slain, right? What is the book of Revelation? It's revealing Jesus as the Christ. So what we're going to see in a second is God is holding this scroll and saying, I can't find anybody worthy to open it. Is anybody but God worthy? I mean, like, God is clearly worthy to open that scroll. So what is he implying? Well, he's implying one of two things. Number one, legally, there's more to the story than what he can be allowed to open. We'll explore that in a second. Well, let's just keep going for that. So if this is the way that we want to look at it, God is saying, I need all of these seven witnesses to represent where the land, the people, the earth is going to go now that there's been a shift in governmental systems. You guys tracking with me? And so basically, Jesus being the one worthy to open the seal is a symbol that Jesus is the one worthy to inherit the earth. Tracking this? So can I say 100% this is what it is? I can't, but I think it's really interesting. The only other time in, in the government that seven seals was used was either in who is inheriting land or who was uh, citizenship was the other place it was used. So, all right, let's dive in and keep looking at it. Okay, uh, so he says, who is worthy to open the scroll? Verse 3, and no one in heaven or earth or under the earth was able to open it. And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. The other application here is that regardless of the seven seals, the way this worked is unless every legal position was present, the judge, the witness, all the people had to be present, and then the seals could be opened. So the other angle we could explore here is that God is saying this, I will not be God without Jesus also being God. So in and of myself, I might be worthy to open this scroll, but I am choosing to acknowledge in this moment that Jesus is not just a man, not just a prophet, not just a good guy. He is also God alongside of me. I think that's what we need to look at for this morning. So he begins to weep, and he's going, who is worthy? And the elder comes over and says to John, essentially, stop weeping. What is he saying? He's like, you're missing the point. I, I think this is a worthwhile tangent for a second. It is possible to be as holy as John was, as mature as John was, as devoted as John was, and be standing in front of the throne of God in heaven and still misunderstand what God is trying to say. And so you and I should take great comfort from this because one of our biggest issues as Christians is disappointment, right? We were so sure that's what God was saying. If you knew how it felt when I was standing there and God said that, and most of the time it probably is true, but occasionally we have an experience like John where he's in the Shekinah glory, he's standing before the throne and God is like saying something directly to him and he's completely missing the point. So Lord, we just receive your grace and, uh, and your command to stop weeping and try again to understand. All right. Uh, verse 6. And then, then there between the throne and the four living creatures, among the elders I saw a lamb, Christ, standing, bearing scars and wounds, as though it had been slain. And so he sees this picture of Jesus as a lamb, 
with seven horns and seven eyes that represent the seven spirits of God. And then he takes the scroll, and then all this worship breaks out because Jesus is found worthy. Amen? I feel so bad skipping over this, but for the sake of time, we're going to skip over it. Sorry, Lord. We love you. Um, So chapter 6, verse 1. Let's get into what the seals are. So he says, Then I saw the lamb, and he broke open one of the seven seals of the scroll, initiating the judgments. And I heard one of the four living creatures call out with a voice like thunder, saying, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse of victory, whose rider carried a bow and a crown of victory, was given to him, and he rode forth conquering and to conquer. So I've heard a lot of people say this, that Jesus is the white horse, because Jesus is on a white horse later in Revelation. But Jesus is the one holding the scroll in this picture. So the white horseman is not Jesus. So who is the white horseman? Up until the 16th century, Christians notoriously believed strongly the white horseman represented Rome. It wasn't until after the 16th century that people stopped thinking that. Here's why. The Roman money at the time, the image, you know, like we've got our money, and it's, you, can, you know what the back of it looks like. Um, in the Roman money, the back of it had a warrior with a bow and a crown. So this would be like me saying, uh, you know, and I saw on a horse, a horse that was red and white with stripes and star, or red and blue with stars and white stripes, and it was carrying a bald eagle. And everybody's like, oh, that's America. We get that, right? And so this is the picture of, of Rome. What you need to understand about the symbolism is twofold. Number one, this is apocalyptic literature. It's meant to be symbolic. Number two, it's meant to be symbolic partially because the readers at the time Had they been caught with this paper in their hand, they would have been brutally killed from either the Jews or the Romans. So when we're going to explore maybe what the mark of the beast is, maybe what uh, the 666 means, maybe all these different things that are to come, I need you to remember they are writing in code to protect each other. Because if you were found holding a document that said that Nero was the Antichrist, for example, then you're going to the Colosseum to be eaten by lions, which was a thing that happened in this time period. And the same way, if you're reading a document that's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, the Jews are not going to be happy with you either. So just remember when we're going, why is this so symbolic? This would have been clear to them. Most, most scholars believe first century Christians would have read this and immediately known, oh, this is Rome. So the first horseman comes out. The second seal is broken, verse 4. And another, a fiery red horse of bloodshed came out, and its rider was empowered to take peace from the earth so that men would slaughter one another. And then we're going to get into this in a second. Then the third seal gets broken, and another creature calls out, Come. This is verse 5. And I looked, and behold, a black horse of famine, and the rider had in its hand a pair of scales of balance. And I heard something like a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not damage the oil and wine. And then he breaks the fourth seal. He says, another living creature says, come and look and behold an ashen, palish, greenish horse like a corpse representing death and pestilence. And its rider was named death. And the rider was death in Hades, the realm of the dead. It was following him, and they were given authority and power over a fourth of the part of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with plague and by the wild beasts of the earth. Okay, here's what I want you to see. I want you to look at it like this. The horsemen were not sent to the earth to do the work of their own hands, right? They were just coming out. So I want us to look at the seven seals as God positioning in the heavens what he's about to do. And then the seven trumpets, which we'll cover later, that God is actually releasing the time for that with the trumpets. 
In that day and age, the way that we did battle, they did battle, was signified by trumpets, right? So they would have their big plan, everybody would go to their spots, and then when the horn blew, they knew how to execute. Remember, the seven seals and the seven trumpets are the same scroll. It's the same thing, okay? So um, we talked about the white horse. The red horse really signifies, this is kind of self-explanatory, it's taking peace. It's, it's like, I look at this as it's God shifting the atmosphere from what is normally a place of his presence to a place of destruction. The third one, the famine, it, as I shared with you guys earlier, Josephus actually records the famine was so bad. Inflation on a loaf of bread was 1,000%. Whole families were dying because they couldn't even afford the most basic, like a cracker. That's how horrible the inflation was when all of this was going down. And um, the fourth seal, the, the dead horse, every translation, yours might say green, it might say pale, and it all implies like the look of death. And then when it goes on to say the fourth part of the earth, they were given authority and power over a fourth part of the earth. There's a word here, the the is a Greek word. It's, I don't know how you pronounce it, but it's spelled G-E. Let's just call it like ge. And that word has directional meaning. And so some translations apply it to mean the entire earth, but it's very possible it actually means this land speaking of Jerusalem. And we're going to see this later in chapter 8, that it's not actually saying that a third of the earth will be burned. It's actually saying a third of Jerusalem will be burned. And that is pretty much what happened. Okay, so let's go on to the fifth seal, um, the martyrs. So as these horsemen are going and positioning in heaven, the fifth seal gets broken and the martyrs start talking, going, is this the time of our vindication? Picture it like this. God is, is giving commands, right? He's shifting the heavens. The martyrs are watching, going, oh, this is the moment. This is the moment we get vindication. And they're asking Jesus, is this it? Is this when you go and like destroy Jerusalem for everything they've done to us? And Jesus says to them, wait just a little bit longer. Again, the message of Revelation is this is imminent. This is happening. And it did happen within a few years of John receiving this revelation. It's pretty interesting stuff. So I don't believe that the martyrs in this particular verse are still waiting for vindication. I believe they got it when God literally destroyed not only Jerusalem, but the Roman system as well and really vindicated all of these. Um, okay, the sixth seal, terror. Okay. Um, this one says, I looked, and when he opened the sixth seal, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth like a fig tree shedding its late summer figs. And it goes on, the sky was split, it was rolled up like a scroll. It's very uh, interesting. It goes on to say in verse 15, then the kings of the earth, the great men, the military commanders, the wealthy and the strong, everybody was hiding themselves in caves. They called on the rocks, asking for the rock to fall on them. Remember, this is symbolic literature. So we can't pick and choose what we want to be literal. I know we want to. <laughs> we want to be like, oh, we'll take this part as totally literal, Lord. But this part is, can't be literal. Don't make that literal. It's, it's, it is symbolic. So in the Bible, the sun, the moon, and the stars pretty much always represent governmental authorities. And it's interesting when Jesus makes the comment about the seven stars in his hand, he makes the denotion that they're not authorities, they're messengers to churches. So anytime that it's not specifically talked about as something different, we can assume it's talking about governmental authorities. Earthquakes in the Bible actually signify God's judgment. So here we see the picture that there's an earthquake judgment that's shifting the powers of governmental authority and all these things are happening and no one, it, it's like indiscriminate. Doesn't matter whether you're wealthy or poor, doesn't matter whether you're a slave or not, if you're a part of this system, something is happening to you. 
I don't have time to dig into the whole thing about the rock falling on you, but when Nebuchadnezzar has his dream in Daniel, he has this dream of this four parts of a, of a statue kind of thing, and, and uh, Daniel ends up interpreting that those are the four kingdoms of the earth. It becomes Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, the Medo-Persian one, Alexander the Great, and then eventually Rome, and then there was a stone that came out that crushed them all, and then Jesus makes a statement that he is the stone, right? And so Jesus is, in his government, is the stone that can crush every kingdom of the earth, and I think that's what's being alluded to through a ton of symbolism that would take me another hour, and I'll spare you the details, but I think that's what's happening there. All right, and then an interlude. Thank you, God. Can you imagine being John, (laughs) right? I've just gotten all these messages to these churches. Now I'm getting all this, like, what is happening, all these horses? And after this, I saw four angels, and he goes on to describe this, and he he says in verse 2, then I saw, this is chapter 7, verse 2, then I saw another angel coming from the rising of the sun, holding the seal of the living God. With a loud voice, he called out to the four angels to whom it was granted to have authority and power to harm the sea. And he called out, do not harm the earth, nor the sea, nor the trees, until we seal mark the bondservants of God on their foreheads. Did you know there are seals of, and markings of protection in Revelation and also markings of the beast? Did you know that? And there's seven of each. Seven times there's a marking of God's protection to his people listed, and seven times there's a mark of the beast listed. And I love this. One commentator puts it this way. We don't believe the marking of God's protection is literal, do we? I mean, none of us think God's implanting a chip in our forehead to protect us, right? But so this is one of those moments where we go, well, that's, that's symbolic. And then we look at the mark of the beast and say, well, that has to be literal because like Bill Gates and stuff, right? <laughs> Look it up. Ironically, because the heavens have a sense of humor, when Bill Gates filed this thing, I'm not exaggerating, the patent number turned out to be 666 of his chip he wants to implant in people. And the bill that the government passed to begin this process, the bill number was 6666. And I just look at that and laugh because it's, that doesn't mean this is the Antichrist. I'm just giving you a, a disclaimer for what's to come. It actually means that the enemy knows that Christians don't know Revelation, and he likes to twist and play with you. Don't be one of those. Amen? Amen. Be one of those that's like, oh, you want to make me afraid? Nope, not happening. Because the last time I read Revelation, it's a story of victory, not a story of terror. Amen? Amen. All right, so, uh, so this is what happens. The marks on the foreheads. In Ezekiel 9, chapter 4, Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4, There's this crazy story where God sends these two angels to go throughout Jerusalem and mark the foreheads. Anybody know this story? Mark the foreheads of those who were grieving over Jerusalem's sin. There's a huge parallel here because Ezekiel is the prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. Revelation is the prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. And there's this theme about marking for protection. And so the angels go and they look and they see everybody who's, who's siding with God. They're grieving over the state of Jerusalem. They get a mark of protection. They end up being spared when Jerusalem is, when is destroyed the first time. This is kind of interesting, right? All right, so then verse 4. Then I heard how many were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Okay, a couple of things you need to know about me. I promise I'm wrapping this up. Uh, so I actually, I come from a Jewish family. My dad and his lineage are all Jewish. And I remember reading this as a teenager. Okay, so I don't know which tribe of Israel I descend from. And I don't know how to be that good to make it into 144,000. So I would sit there and I would think, from the time that this, that, like this was written, 
until the end of the world, there's going to be a lot more than 144,000 people like Mother Teresa. So what can I do with my life? This is the real workings of my 15-year-old self. What can I do with my life to make sure I get into that group so that I can be somehow saved from all of this that I don't understand? If you're like me, today is your lucky day because I was wrong, praise God. And, and if you're thinking that, you might be wrong as well. So here's what you need to understand. Again, this is symbolic literature, right? The 144,000 is actually a number meaning completeness. It's meaning all of those who were faithful are going to be saved. Now, if we go into the actual history, what happened? All of those who were believing in Jesus, believed his word, believed revelation, were saved, quite literally, from death. The records show not one Christian was killed. And there were more than the Christians who actually escaped this. That's pretty wild, right? So high fives for the mark of protection, Lord. You can mark all of us with that. We'll take that. Um, okay, I just want to make two more notes here. Verse 17, I'm not going to talk about the multitude of everybody coming together, but picture it in the context of what we're saying here. Verse 17, 16, they will hunger no longer, thirst, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb, who is the center of the throne, will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of waters of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. To me, in the context of all the seven seals, these two verses might be the most extraordinary. Because what's being prophesied here is, listen, this is your hometown, and it's going to get really bad. And the journey to Mount Pella, and we'll see later, they were there for 42 months, which actually is prophesied in there as well. Just the way it ended up happening, the length of the siege on Jerusalem just happened to be the exact time that Jesus prophesies he's going to protect them. It's interesting. And so they're losing everything. They're losing people they know. They're literally losing their homes. They're losing their sense of normalcy. And what is Jesus' promise to them? It's the same promise to you and I. Whether or not, we, we don't know what's coming in the world, right? We can't truly predict that. We don't have a revelation for America that is like this, and thank God for that. But regardless of what comes our way, this is the picture we need to focus on, that the lamb who is the center of the throne will be your shepherd, it says, he will guide them to springs of waters of life, and he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. And when I look at this, it's like Jesus is having compassion on his people. He knows the destruction has to happen for all kinds of reasons, but he wants to preserve his relationship with his people, and he wants his people to see him as their shepherd. Isn't that beautiful? And I know for you and I, sometimes when we go through our own personal tribulations, when we go through times where there's just so much coming at us all the time, the temptation is to look at Jesus and be like, where are you? Why are you not fixing this? But where Jesus is, is in the middle with them, comforting them, sustaining them, leading them to living water. In this case, this would be the life source of the Holy Spirit. Amen? I don't know about you, but I'm sure some of us need that in our lives today. Some of us need to, uh, to, to let Jesus reveal himself in the center of whatever we're going through. And so if that's you, I, I'm going to pray for you in just a second. I just think this is such a profound promise for us even today. And so the final seal is broken in chapter 8, verse 1. It says, there was silence in heaven for half an hour in awe of God's impending judgment. That's all I have to say about that. I'm partially kidding. Um, 
But the silence is really interesting. It, it is like the calm before the storm. It is like a recalibrating. But again, what I want you to note is the connection. The seven seals are opening the scroll, which is now about to go into the seven trumpets. So let's make a connection about these two things. We're not going to dive into it today. But I think it's really interesting when God gives us pause, right? I think it's interesting when God's like, hey, let's just be quiet for a minute. Let's just absorb everything that's been going on. Let's absorb the magnitude of what you are experiencing, how you're processing this revelation. And this is my challenge to you guys today, and this is where we're going to end, is coming back to this promise of Jesus being at the center and the, the ability to stop and actually focus on that. Amen? So here's how we're going to end this morning. I just want you to take a second and just close your eyes. And if you're comfortable, just put your hands out like you're receiving a beach ball or something. And we're just going to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal Jesus to us in our personal life. So, so what we're doing is we're just asking the Holy Spirit, show me what Jesus is up to in my life today. I just want to take a pause. I want to look. I want to see where he's being my shepherd. And you might see a picture. You might have a memory pop up. You might hear a Bible verse. Or you may just hear silence and, and feel his presence. That's okay, too. But, Father, right now we come before you and we just ask you, release your word to our spirits this morning. Thank you, Lord. And, Holy Spirit, would you show us where is Jesus being the shepherd in our life? And so, Lord, I just pray over every person in this room that your position in their life would be clear. So if there's anybody here that doesn't know Jesus as your personal Savior, there is no better time than now to give your heart to him. He's actually standing at the door of your heart letting you know that he's already paid for the consequence of every sin that you've ever done or that you ever will do. And all he's asking of you is to just surrender your heart to him, to let him in, to receive his forgiveness. And so I just want to encourage you, if that's you and you're saying, man, I need to know Jesus more. I don't know Jesus. I need to let him in. Just take a second and tell him that. There's nothing magical about the words. It's really just a prayer of sincerity. Lord, I want to know you. I want you to know me. God, I receive the forgiveness that you have for me today. Lord, I give my life to you. I let you into the door you're knocking at. In Jesus' name. And for everybody else, Lord, I just pray a blessing over them. Lord, as they fight to not partner with fear in these days, God, we thank you that you are actually expanding your goodness on the earth right now. That you're actually expanding your goodness in every single person's life that's sitting here right now. And so we just release a blessing onto them to be ones who walk with favor, to be ones that walk with um, with you, with a deep relationship with you, and to be ones that bring impact everywhere we go. In Jesus' name, amen. 